This is the Almost Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Britt, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Bill? Excellent. Folks, welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I am one half of your host, Bill Real, And I'm Britt Hartley. And we're excited to have you today. Britt, you are uh, in charge of today's uh, episode. And this is I'm be- so excited. I'm so excited for uh, to introduce this guest. Um, we've been emailing and I've been listening to his podcast for a long time. He's just doing really, really beautiful work in the world. So I'm really excited to introduce Bart Campolo today. There he is. Bart, how are you doing? Hello. <laughs> So tell us, um, let's, let's start with, see, the thing is, that's funny. We have a lot of, not all, but, but we have a large population of, of ex or post Mormons in this, in this podcast. They have no idea how famous I am. And yes, they have no idea. How important I am. One of the blessing, yes, one of the blessings and or curses of Mormonism is that we kind of just don't know what's going on with the with the broader Christian body. We just don't we don't like to play. We don't make friends in that Christian body. Don't need to. So I you you know, there's some truth to that. (laughs) There's a lot of truth to that. So yeah, we we just don't play nicely. And so when you're telling, we'd love for you to just tell your story. And while knowing that people in our audience may not have ever heard of you and may not have ever heard of your dad. And so you may have to kind of go through your story a little slower because uh, we are just, you know, we're going through our own Mormon deconstruction thing, not realizing that it's part of kind of a bigger movement because we've never really been a part of the Christian body in general. And so we're trying to make these connections to, to kind of that bigger audience. So tell us about you and how you ended up doing the work that you're doing today. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it's so funny because in some ways it's a parallel track, you know, because mm-hmm. what's interesting in the world that I grew up in, evangelical Christians, they didn't consider we didn't consider the Mormons a part of our movement. Like, yeah, they were this cult over there, right? Um, and so, and, and so, if, if you thought of us the same way, it would be totally yeah. understandable. But we're all deconstructing and going through the same kind of processes, yeah, and we outside, just use we just use different words, and right. you know, we're we're just doing the human thing over here. <laughs> so, so the long and the short of it is, I grew up um, outside of Philadelphia, um, and 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 I grew up in a evangelical Christian world. My dad, um, when I was, before I was, my dad had been an evangelical Christian minister. Then he became a college professor and a university professor, a sociology professor. But when he became a sociology professor, he kept traveling around and being like the guest preacher at all these churches all over the place. And my dad is one of like the world's great speakers. He's one of the, like, he's, he, he was just an unbelievably good public speaker, just full of charisma and he's funny and trenchant and all this stuff. So anyway, he blew up. And as I got older and older, my dad was like everywhere. 
He was speaking at huge conventions of Christians. He was, he was speaking at youth gatherings with 50,000 kids on a hillside somewhere. He was, um, when eventually he became like one of the spiritual advisors to President Clinton. And you would, you know, he'd be zooming down to the White House to, to hang with the president. And, and so he, like, he wrote like 30 books. He was just, you know, everywhere. And so when you're growing up in the household of a Christian evangelist, pretty much everybody assumes that like I sprang from the womb praising the Lord, you know, mm -hmm. like you're the minister's kid. So they think that, and I actually growing up in that world, I didn't become a Christian until I was 15 years old. And it wasn't because I was like rebellious or hated my dad. It was just, I didn't believe in God didn't make any mm -hmm. sense to me. The whole story, the whole narrative. I don't know if this may be shocking to you, but like it doesn't actually make a whole lot of like rational sense. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was in high school that I, I that, that what happened was, it was a, I was a high school soccer player and a guy on my soccer team brought me along to his youth group. And it was like this, at this mega church, like 300 kids in this youth group with a rock and roll band and huge, you know, cycle shows and big games we were playing. And I walked into this youth group. It was like the nicest group of people I had ever met. Like everybody was wonderful and warm and kind and there was energy. And I got swept up in this youth group. And in the context of that youth group, a guy, in my, that, that same guy that took me along to it, like, you know, I just, you know, I knew all the language, you know, it made sense to me. Like I understood all the songs because I'd grown up in that world. But all mm -hmm. of a sudden in this youth group, you're with all it these came, people. It came alive. Oh, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. like we went on a retreat, you know, we're out there on Saturday night on this retreat and there's fire going and we're all singing songs and praising the Lord. And all of a sudden, like I felt something, you know, and now, now, you know, now I, I probably would explain that thing differently. Right. But don't tell me I didn't feel something. Yeah. You know, there's, like, there's a something a little bit similar in Mormonism because our meetings, uh, our meetings are very kind of subdued and hushed. Right. But uh, we have a very popular thing called EFY where all the parents send their kids to these kind of youth camps and you're, you know, you're just holding arms with all these youth just like you. Yeah. And you're singing this song that you're the army of, he, you know, are, you're part of this army, you know, and you start feeling something and these kids come home with testimonies. And it's a very similar thing. Oh, yeah. And I went to one once and like you, I've all, I, I was always wrestling even as a kid, but I came home and I was so like uh, empowered by this. I remember someone, one of the one of the speakers said, you know, if you can't listen to that music with the prophet or with Jesus, throw that CD away. So I came home and like Foo Fighters gone, Weezer gone, you know, hundreds of dollars worth worth. Of, yes. And like now I look back and I'm like, oh, I threw all my music. Away. <laughs> but it, but yeah, it's something and it's powerful. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and what I would say is like, you know, it's funny because like now you know, I'm sort of well-known among certain secular folks. And, and sometimes people will say to me, like, you must feel so embarrassed, at, you know, because you used to write. Because, you know, I got swept up in it. I mean, I, I got all in. And then I became an inner city missionary in the Christian church. And, like, for 30 years, I was like this guy, you know, preaching and missioning and doing all this stuff. And, and, and you know, people who now on the other side are like, oh, you must be so embarrassed, you know, because you talked as though, like, 
you heard the voice of God and you talked about how you felt the Holy Spirit. And I was like, oh, I don't give like that happened. I heard mm-hmm. stuff. I felt stuff. Like, like when, when people claim that they have had these kind of spiritual experiences, like transcendent moments, I go like, I believe them. Mm-hmm. I, I had them. Like, like I would explain them differently, but they're real. Yeah. And what I would say is whatever narrative you're in, when you have one, it confirms that narrative. So mm-hmm. if you're at Mormon EFT, whatever, whatever that is, if you're, if, mm-hmm. if you're in Mormon land, you go like, oh, Mormonism is true. And if mm-hmm. you're in evangelical Christian, and like if I'd had that same out-of-body experience on, on a, at a Muslim youth camp, I would have gone like, Allah, yes, it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Whatever you're in, it confirms it. Yeah. So we have this language in, in Mormonism where we talk about um, a shelf where you, uh, you know, put things on the shelf like, ooh, that bothers me a little bit. I'm going to put that on the shelf. And then there's kind of a moment that comes. This is just kind of the language that deconstruction Mormons kind of use um, where, you know, you, you keep putting these things on the shelf and then one day your shelf kind of breaks and you really have to face kind of these these things that you've tried to kind of put off yeah. over here. So c- kind of go through then your, your, your preaching, your, you know, you're traveling the United States and I'm sure it always says Bart Campolo, son of Tony Campolo, and you're doing all this cool stuff. So what, tell, tell us about kind of how that deconstructs. Great. It's a little bit different in the evangel in the Christian world, because what, okay. ha- what happened for me was, you know, people say like, well, when did your deconstruction start? Or when did you, you know, when did your faith begin to lose? I'm like, you know, 10 minutes after I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, mm-hmm. I started having questions. Like the supernatural part of it never made perfect sense to me. I mean, what, what, what I wanted to be part of was a part of this group, part of this, this fellowship, part of this movement, having a sense of purpose and like doing something good in the world. So you know, it was, I was a nice, it wasn't like I was like this horrible, violent drug dealer and I came to Jesus and then I became a nice guy. I was a nice guy when I walked into this youth group and I was like, oh, this is like a club for nice people. Like I fit in. This makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and so for me, like the values were always there and, and the, the supernatural part of Christianity, that was the hard part for me to swallow. That was like, if, okay, if, if I got to do this to be part of this movement, like I'll do it because I want to mm-hmm. be part of it so much. But it was hard for me, mm-hmm. and and um, and so what happened to me was my my sort of theological orthodoxy, like it died the death of a, t- a thousand cuts mm-hmm. over like thirty years. Mm-hmm. But the difference is, is Mormonism is a much more monolithic like. This is what we are. This is what we believe. I know yeah, we're, some, we're very young and immature. We don't have a lot of these nuanced spaces. But in Christianity, what would happen would be what, as I would, as something would become difficult with me in, in Christianity, I would admit like, yeah, I don't believe that anymore. And then like, I would become a different kind of Christian. So like mm. I passed through every kind of heresy mm-hmm. on my way to apostasy. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so there's a point at which I was like, you know what? I'm with all these people. But like, I'm out there in the world and I'm meeting people who are good people who don't believe in Jesus. And then they would get killed because like I was working in the inner city. So I would like be working with young people. I would love this person. They would get killed. Something bad mm-hmm. would happen. And they would go like, well, he's going to hell because he never accepted Jesus Christ. And I was like, yeah, I don't think God would work that. Like the, the loving Jesus that they talk about. So I became what they call a universalist. 
somebody who yeah. still believes in Jesus. But I believe that Jesus's death on the cross would ultimately save everybody, that God would mm. ultimately win everybody over, that there would be post-mortem conversions and every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ was Lord. And you go like, well, then you weren't the same kind of Christian you were at the beginning. I was like, no, no, no now I was a different. Then like there came a point at which like I was around a lot of gay people and the whole mm. gay thing didn't make sense to me. And so like I changed my theology again, you mm -hmm. know, and you go like, and, and then there came a point at which I became pretty convinced that like God wasn't in control of stuff like the weather that we had been praying for or stuff like poverty since, you know, clearly if, if God was in charge of poverty, he kind of sucked. And so yeah. my sense of what God was directly in control of in the world kept shrinking. Mm -hmm. And being a Christian meant more, was less like God is in control of everything. And it was more like, I want God to be in control of me so that I can fight the powers of evil in the world on his behalf. Mm. But God is not, when, when a little kid gets run over by a car, that God didn't allow that. Yeah. That's against God's will. So and I heard you kept say, changing all the way. Yeah. And I've heard you say that, you know, before you were, uh, before you kind of let go of God, you were really preaching this idea of God can't, which is, so, oh, so right, right now I'm in, you know, I was in a, theology degree and it's in open and relational theology with Thomas Ward. And it's this idea, God can't what, what, uh, if you can remember, cause you know, so much is, of this is happening subconsciously as you're growing and changing and taking in new information. But if you could put words to what was the shift from God can't to God isn't. You know, I think that what happens is, is that for me, the amount of things that you can't, that God can't do, that God isn't responsible for, just keeps growing. And after a while, you believe in a God who agrees with, like, ultimately, the God I believed in at the end was perfect. I love that God. He agreed with everything. He liked everything I liked. He hated everything I hated. He wasn't mm -hmm. responsible for anything bad. And you end up realizing, mm. like, huh. Maybe I created this nice God. He lines up right with me. Yeah. You know, mm. and so what happens is, is that the God I ended up believing in was a really beautiful God that had no authority in my life because mm. it was so clearly a projection of my own values. Mm. And I was kind of awake enough to figure that was going on. And, and so, you know, ultimately, um, I think that you, you, it, 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 what, it, I had a bike crash. Mm -hmm. um, about 12 years ago, you know, I'm, I'm riding a, a bicycle and I go off the road into a tree. I, I don't remember any of it. I just know I had, a, I left that house in the morning. I woke up in the hospital and in between I had this crash, smashed my helmet, would have been killed without the helmet. Couldn't think straight for a month. And when my, my sort of consciousness and my, and my ability to think came back to me, I remember saying to my wife, you know, I think, I think my whole identity is in my brain. Cause like, if you smash my head against a tree at 40 miles an hour, I change. Mm. And I, and I, I think I'm, and I think I'm going to die. Cause I almost died. Mm. And like, I'm really aware that I'm going to die. And I think that when I die and my brain breaks down, I don't think I'll exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I, I kind of think this is all there is. This is it. This is mm -hmm. our life. And she was like, yeah. She said, I've been thinking that for a while now. Hmm. She said, 
I think you better stop being a professional Christian because there's nothing left. Like mm. you don't believe any of it. Mm. And so I think it was, it was that experience of realizing that I, that when I thought about dying, there was no sense that I had that I would exist beyond my own death or that there was anything out there waiting for me. I was really convinced that my, consciousness and my and my identity was physical mm -hmm. and that when the physicality of it broke down there would be nothing left of me mm. um, in, yeah yeah interesting that, i go ahead. you know in in mormonism you know in the in the religion that the two of us come from what may be a little different is that i really do believe it's one of these high demand fundamentalist religions and it it makes deconstructing super scary it's going to rip your community away from you no ifs ands or buts it's going to change and probably for the worse some of your family relationships absolutely it is going to label you as uh, a chafe among the wheat uh, as an apostate as somebody who can't be trusted and so deconstruction is extremely scary and yet so many uh, of those folks end up going down the rabbit hole and learning one way or another that their system isn't true social issues for instance treatment of the lgbt community or pe uh, persons of color for instance um, a lot of people struggle over historical issues, which seem to run into problems all over the place. And as you're talking about your deconstruction, it seems less abrasive. And yet um, you come from a, a dynamic of having family, a father who is prestigious in this community. And he's he's known and he's um, trusted and followed and and yet you break away from that. You had to have had kind of your own pressures to continue believing. You had oh, to have yeah. had, you, again, I, I know I pretended for a while. I pretended to believe and part of my brain knew it didn't add up. I'm, I'm curious, as you deconstructed, like, what was that experience like? Like, um, yeah, no, the, the was it scary, to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, was it scary to interact with dad and to try to say, hey, dad, I don't, I don't think this anymore. Well, and that's the thing. Like, first of all, when I listen to my Mormon friends tell me about their stories, and I mean, I have a bunch of Mormon friends that I've met over the years through this stuff. And I'm always like, oh my gosh, like it was so much harder for you. Like, do, like I don't compare myself. Like for me, people are like, oh, you're so courageous, you know, that you came out. Like, yeah, like, it really wasn't that hard for me. I mean, first of all, um, I was married to somebody who was going through the process with me. Mm. Right? And my kids had never fully bought in. And so I wasn't going to lose them. Mm. My parents, my, my dad, for all of his evangelical wonderfulness and all that stuff, the fact of the matter is, is that I knew that his theology was not one in which people burn in hell forever because they have the wrong theology. Mm -hmm. And so like, it's one thing when you leave the fold. He was crushed when I left. Like we worked together. You know, I, I, I was proud of me. People, it, 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 it was mm -hmm. embarrassing for him. Like, mm -hmm. and don't get, and, and the thing, Bill, is like my dad is a big deal and was a big deal in that world. I was a big deal in that world. Like I was a very well-known guy. I spoke all over the place. And so when I left, it was a big, hairy deal for him and for other people. But the difference is, he might have been sad and disappointed, but he didn't actually think I was going to burn in hell forever. And so that changes the dynamic. Like we had less, that what was at stake is different than when a, a hardcore Mormon leaves that faith and, and, and their people are like, whoa, you can't come to the wedding anymore. 
well, you can't, we can't, no, we're done. <clears throat> and like, I didn't go through that. I didn't, you know, people say, oh, you must've lost so much. I lost my job. I lost my way to make a living. I lost my identity. But like, look at me, like, I'm an Ivy League educated guy from a nice two-parent family who's fairly articulate. Like, I was going to be fine. I had a nice wife and nice kids. Like, I was going to be, like, you know, I'll figure something out. Um, and I, even in terms of relationships and fellowship, like, I'm a kind of person that, like, you like, well, you lost your community. I was like, yeah, but all those communities I lost, I built half of them. Like, I know how to build a community. I'll go someplace and build a new community. Mm. And so it's much, much harder for other people. Mm. Other people. You know, and, and when I think about my Mormon friends who go through this, th th what they lose is greater and, 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 and where they are is more isolated. And so like, like I, if, if your listeners are going like, this guy sounds like a softy, like I am compared to y'all, I'm a softy. <laughs> I want to I follow that up then because your journey of deconstruction is so much different. Um, what do you see as the, the positive aspects of which I think we all could kind of agree on? But maybe more importantly, what are the negative things that come up as we're deconstructing? What are the things that we need to be careful of? Um, because your journey is so much different. So we're weighing maybe different risks than you are. Yeah. Your thoughts on the deconstruction process, maybe generally. You know, when I left, when, when, after that bike crash, you know, I'm sort of like, I'm done. Um, I, you know, like... I, I, I had probably been done for, for years, but like I was able to kind of like in that little Venn diagram between what the church believes and what I believe, there was still a sliver. And that was the sliver in which I preached all my sermons. We should love the poor. We, you, know, we should, mm -hmm. you know, we should be good people. You know? yeah. and, and so I was able to live my value system. My values didn't change. So I was like, I could live there. But when I realized like, look, I can't even pay lip service to this anymore. I'm done. Um, I think that, that the first thought that occurred to me was, I'm religious by nature. And by that, I don't mean I'm a supernaturalist. I don't believe in anything by nature. But like religion, if you step way back from it, is, the process, is a collective process by which people make sense of themselves in the world. And most religions have at least two elements. One is an, a, a cosmos. They're like, this is where we come from. This is where the world comes from. This is where humanity comes from. This is what happens when you die. Like, this is the cosmos. This is the way the world is. And then they have an ethos that says, because the world is this way, you should live this way. Because God is this, because Jesus did this, because, you know, whatever it is, because Allah did this, because the world is this way, you should live this way. And all of my Christian life, I made decisions based on like, you know, you go like, did Christianity tell you like what kind of car to buy? Like, of course. Told me where to live, what to do, who to marry, who not to marry, like who, to, who is a good friend, wh what kind of movies I should watch. Like, and because everything was, if the world is this way, how should I live? And when I stopped believing in God, when I admitted that I had stopped believing in God, that whole cosmology goes away. And I go like, I still want to love poor people. I still want to be nice to my wife. I still want to make the world a better place. I still don't want to hurt people with my sexuality. Like I got all these things. I still, my values stay the same. And I immediately realized like, I need a new story to support this. 
And I think, Bill, a lot of times when people leave a faith as hardcore and fundy as Mormonism, they're like, that's it. I'm sick of religion. I, mm. I, I don't even want to think about this stuff anymore. Like, I'm out here. I'm done. And, 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 and you know, a lot of the ex-Mormons I know, then they go through a ridiculous period where they, like, have sex with everything that moves, um, live very selfishly, and then they're deeply depressed. And they drink a lot. And, and, and they go, like, because they're like, I don't, there's no rules. I'll do whatever I want and stuff like that. And, and then they go like, wait a second. I don't want to do whatever I want. I want to be a good person like my mother was. I just mm -hmm. can't. But like she had a whole structure to support that. And that's when I realized like first thing I did when I got out was I started reading and I started looking for a secular religion a secular explanation of where we come from and, and how we became human and what happens when we die. And I tried to figure out, is there a way of telling this story, the natural story, evolution, you know, this, is, this life is the only one that you have, all that stuff. Is there a way of telling that story that will inspire me to want to be more loving, to want to be, to want to be more, more good? To, to want to have better relationships, to want to make a difference for other people, to want to be grateful for this one life I have. So I was like, what I realized was is that I needed a new religion, not a new supernaturalism, but I needed a new narrative of this is the way the world works. And because the world is this way and because life works this way, I got to love you, Britt. I got to try to do my best for you. Bill, I, I got to see, like, if you're hungry, I got I, I, I to gotta share with you. Like, and I, I wanted a new, like when, when you, when you were growing up in Mormonism, you tell your kids, you got to share. And they go like, why do I have to share? And you go like, well, the Bible says, or, or, well, God wants you to, or well. So what do you say now? Cause I still want my kids to share. And so I needed to have a new, a new way of explaining that. And I spent six months just reading and thinking and drawing lines on papers and stuff, trying to figure out so that I could look at somebody in the right eye. Look, look somebody in the eye and in my right mind say, this is why I'm living this way. Because hmm. I needed that. Yeah, you really nailed it for where Mormonism is now. So we just have, because, um, you know, with, with Christianity, it's a little bit different just because historical truth claims, I mean, you're talking 2000 years ago to, so to go, so to go wrestle with all that, I mean, you have, you need degrees and decades to do that. But with Mormonism, it was kind of like, here's the story and then boom, the internet. And that's not the story. And then we're looking at maybe a third of, of, you know, people who were raised Mormon, um, currently leaving, you know, just this huge deconstruction out. And because it's such a high demand religion, and there's some level of religious trauma, we do get this um, huge population of Mormons who have kind of just gone to nihilism or they know they can't go back to church, but they're depressed because they miss the community and they don't know how to rebuild it. And they're just really stuck, which is yeah. really why I wanted you on this podcast is because we just have this huge population of deconstructing Mormons. They're not part of the broader Christian community. They're just totally stuck. And then you have these post-Mormon groups and we were doing polls of these post-Mormon groups and finding out how often it happens that you're drinking alcohol in a hot tub and there's no rules anymore. So my wife's going to make out with your wife. And all of a sudden, you know, that stuff starts happening. Yeah. And we're just as a community, just so lost because anything that sounds like religion again, or sounds like God again, 
there's this allergy, right? We have this allergy. And so um, as a community, we're trying to kind of grab hold of some things to re to show that you can rebuild um, a secular religion because you need one, but it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell. So tell me, you well, had a I, podcast. I, Go ahead. Yeah. Can I just like respond to that? Just yeah. quickly. Mm-hmm. One of the things that in evangelical Christianity that happened to me a lot is when I, when I, when I would get, when I still get letters from evangelicals all the time, trying to win me back to the faith and they go like, I just don't understand because without Chris, without God, why be moral? There's no, there's no moral absolutes. Like you can do whatever you want. Like you could rape, you could rape and murder. And I go like, that's true. And I do, I rape as many people as I want every day. Mm -hmm. And I murder as many people as I want to every day which is zero. Like, like mm -hmm. they act as though like we are just like, of course we all want to rape people and kill people. And they, they but this idea that without God, there's no morality. Mm. There's no moral absolutes. And sometimes it feels that way when you see all those Mormons in hot tubs. Mm -hmm. But what, what really happened is, is that religion didn't invent morality. It's just the other way around. People figured out what works. What makes a tribe hold together? How do we have to treat each other? Bonobos know this. Elephants know this. Like wolves know this. Like that there has to be mutual concern and care that you have to oh, forgive things and you have to reconcile conflicts that, you know, that they're, they're, these, they're these ways that have emerged. And like human morality is kind of like essentially based on like what works, what keeps the tribe alive, what keeps us going. And so what happens is, is that then people eventually form religions to codify a moral sensibility that's really just like, this is what works. This is like how human beings thrive. Love is not something Christianity or Mormonism invented. It's something they codified because like love emerged as like, this is a really valuable way. This is like the ultimate life hack. Loving people, this works. Love is the way. And so what happens is, is that, you know, when people come out of that, they, 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 they react against all the stuff that's been imposed upon them. And I think it's really important that we, that we help each other to recognize that our, our moral instincts are deeper and more and more embedded in us than religion. Mm -hmm. And and so you you know in a sense you're going to need you're th 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 you're going to need this. You're going to need this. Mm -hmm. And and so I think that when people are are coming out of it there's sometimes people are really angry because they feel like they've had a lot of their life taken away. And particularly if you're a woman in Mormonism, oh, you've got a lot to be angry about. You're a woman in evangelicalism. You got a lot to be angry about. But like for me, like, you know, I repressed all kinds of sexual stuff when I was a young person. Like my whole sexual development was really whacked out when I was a kid. And so, you know, and, and you're like, did that carry into your marriage and cause trouble? Yeah, sure. Lots of guilt and lots of shame and lots of stuff. Like, I'm still working through stuff, right? So I think there's a lot of anger that sometimes people feel. But there's also this sense in which they throw out. They don't realize that because religion was invented by people and invented in a lot of ways for good reasons. A lot of the stuff that people invented works really well. Like this business yeah. of 
gathering together and talking this is about the what hard matters sell. to us. Yeah. yeah. Th this is where I get like, this is the hard sell of what you're trying to do. And I feel like Bill and I are, are doing because you get attacked on both sides with this cell, which is, you know, really, you know, you're deconstructing from religion. There's supernatural things that you just can't get behind. Fine. Yeah. But then we have this whole community saying we don't need a story, we don't need rituals, we don't we need, need a liturgical tribe. calendar, we don't and and to try to to sell, you know, I'm trying to sell people every day, you still need rituals. You still have to write your family liturgical calendar. In fact, now it's going to be harder because it's not written for you. Right. And you still have to have days on the calendar or something where you're experiencing awe and you still need to have gratitude practices and you still need to do, you have to essentially then, you know, as you're leaving religion, because it's not working for you. And for good reason, you know, I'm a Mormon woman with a gay brother. Like I get yeah, for yeah. good reason, but then people don't realize in order to get all those tools that are embedded in religion, you have to build that from the ground up. And that is hard. That is hard, hard stuff. So you did a podcast a while ago um, about kind of selling to trying to sell to people that they need to replace God with some kind of ultimate. And this is a really hard sell. I see a lot of pushback on this idea. So even in the YouTube comments that I'm kind of watching, there was a comment that said, why do I need a story to be a good person? Why do I need to have, you know, and it's this story of why do I need why do I need to replace God and a story with some kind of ultimate? Can I answer that just real quick? Please. Yeah. Can you kind of address that? Yeah. You may not like that. And, and here's where I got to be really honest with you. And that is I left Christianity years before I left fundamentalism. When I first gave up Christianity, I was still a fundamentalist at heart. And so I simply went from trying to figure out the one true, right, best, one size fits all way of following God to looking for the one true best. This is the way to live the, the right kind of secular life. And I was like, it's all about community. It's all about connections. Then you're like, wait a second. What if you're autistic? What if, what if large groups of people or, or, or in intimate human relations are terrifying to you? Does that mean you can't live a good life? Does that mean you can't contribute to, 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 to humanity or, or be a good person? I was like, wait a second. What if you've been deeply damaged in relationships and, and like, and, and you just can't trust people this way? Are you done? Are you like, and I realized like, you know what? That one size fits all thing. That's an that's a kind of, that's what religions do when they're trying to kind of create an us themness with the world. Mm -hmm. But in reality, there are a lot of different ways to thrive as a human being. I would dare say there's a bell curve. And for most people, most of us are going to thrive best in the context of a tribe, in the context of a sense of belonging. And we're going to need, we're going to, we're going to value the support of other people in relations. But, but like the idea of imposing it and saying, you have to need a narrative. Maybe you don't need a narrative. Maybe a narrative would traumatize the hell out of you because of where you came from. I don't know. But what I'm saying is, is like, as I've, as I've traveled and met and talked with and worked with people, I find that like, you know, and within the bell curve, there are a lot of people for whom without the songs and without the, the eating together and without the regularly gathering with people who share your values and can support you in doing that. And you go like, that's how people get off alcohol. That's how people lose weight. That's how people get in shape. That's how people do like anything that's hard to do. 
you go like, yeah, we better find a group of people that share this value and we'll support each other in doing it. We'll do it together. And so that's what works for most people. And so what I end up saying is like, look, this thing I'm doing, trying to build community, secular communities around an ethos of love. I go like, if your life's working awesome for you on the outside of Mormonism, how about it, baby? Like, do whatever you're doing. Like, if, if, if you're thriving in that way and you're, and you're happy not hurting anybody, I'm fine with you. My stuff is, what, what I do is, I, I don't try to convince people that their way of life doesn't make sense. Even Christian people, I don't try to convince them their way of life doesn't make sense. If that's working for you and, and you're joyful and happy and loving and you don't have all the same issues that I did, because I got hundreds of millions of people out here who, who it isn't working for or who, who never were Christian at all, and they're lonely and anxious and depressed and sad and isolated. And so, like, that's, that's who I go evangelize. I go, like, look, me and my friends, we live this other way. These are the values we're committed to. You don't have to believe anything, but, like, these are the values committed. If you want to commit to these values, you would probably fit in with us really well. And we have all these ways of practicing them and celebrating them. And we, you know, we're into gratitude because like we've got a lot of science that says if gratitude will help you enjoy your life more. And we're into eating together because we've got a lot of science that would suggest that this will connect you and make you feel a greater sense of belonging. And like this way of life is working for us really good. And if your way of life sucks, you should try ours. And if your way of life is awesome and it's different from ours, like good on you. We'll move on and look for some more sad people. You look for sad people, we'll look for sad people. And when all the sad people are part of some kind of lifestyle that's working for them, then we can discuss the merits. You know, we can compare the merits of our various communities. But at this stage in the game, mm. I, I know too many people that are just that is, and alone out there. I, I'm not fighting with anybody. Mm, that is a place where there's, I feel like there's a divide in kind of this um, post-religious spiritual community because you have... Some people who say, if it's working for you, I'm just going to leave you alone because I don't want to be a missionary anymore. You have that kind of camp. But then you also have the camp that says, hey, we used to be able to do that when we were tribes. But now that fundamentalism may be the thing that blows us up, we actually need to push on those people because they have bombs and they have political power and they have a lot of things. And we're going to blow up the human race. And I see these two. There's kind of a there's a little fork there. I feel and, and, sometimes and I, in this I'm community. Right in the I'm in the tension because like I'm like, if y'all are having a good time, you're fine. But like until I until I see that they're teaching Sunday school or, or vacation Bible school and teaching little kids this stuff. And I go, oh, you're going to fuck up another bunch of kids. No, I can't let you do that. Um, yeah. And so and so, I, you know. <laughs> I, I, I have a heart. I, I, I have, I'm, I'm, schizo a, I'm schizophrenic on this issue. There's a tension there. Yeah. There's a tension on how much, you know, should we push, but then you feel like a missionary again and you feel like you're a fundamentalist for a new well, religion, yeah, but the then you also push, feel the like, you, push, you know, the more, the more they double down. You also feel, yeah, I know. And then you also feel like, but if I don't push, then we're going to blow each other up over whose God is right. And I don't want to be a part of that. And right. the, and the, nobody the, knows, nobody knows kind of the right path through that. So I sense, I mean, even with really people doing really, really good work in this post-religious okay. space, there's a lot of tension on, on how do we do this because we never have. This, I will say this, hmm. is that even if I, my, my only goal in life was to deconvert Christians, and deconvert Morgan, Mormons, even if that was all I wanted to do, I still wouldn't go direct and attack them. I would still build a community over here and do exactly the same work I'm doing. Because in my experience, when you directly attack people in any kind of belief system, they defensively double down and they recommit to it and they, they shut out any, like, like that shuts down their critical faculties and they just become blindly loyal to it, number one. 
And number two is not only like they shut down and also it changes you by being that kind of attacker. It changes you and it deters you from experiencing the joy mm -hmm. of the lifestyle that you've stepped into. So mm -hmm. if I really wanted to deconvert Christians, I would build a community that was every bit as loving as theirs, every bit as meaningful as theirs, every bit as vibrant as theirs. And I would go like, look, you tell me that God is the magic ingredient that makes a community work, but my community works just the same without God. So God couldn't possibly be the magic ingredient. And so like the best way to replace an evil idea or a bad idea is, is with a better idea. Mm -hmm. and is with a better reality and so like the, there, there is a tension like should we be attacking them to you know should we or shouldn't we be attacking them but i think if you really step back and you go like if even if even if you're the, the, the real tension is should my goal be to deconvert people or should my goal be to leave them alone and i go like either way whichever your goal is you should leave them alone mm -hmm. even if your goal is to deconvert them you should leave them alone Mm -hmm. Be wonderfully nice. And then when they ask you, like, how are like, I don't understand what, you know, like, I think I, I deconvert many more Christians because they go like, they, they, they look at me and they go like, gosh, he speaks my language. He understands where I'm coming from. He know he, he, he's not viciously, horribly cruel to me. He's, he's. He's so everything I want to be, and he doesn't believe in God. I guess it's not. I guess be, not believing in God doesn't make you a horrible asshole like Richard, you know, like like Richard yeah. Dawkins. <laughs> and I love Richard Dawkins. Don't get me wrong; yeah. I love Richard Dawkins. But like, I know that the Christian people, to them, he's just a mean guy who just wants yeah. to piss all over them. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and to them, they go like, "Bart, they invite me into their churches and listen to me." And then afterwards, people come back, come come to me, and go like, "Listen, I don't think I believe in God either." Can I jump in for just a second, Britt? Yeah, so please. I may be in this whole different space and I'm picking things out from what both of you guys are saying. When I deconstructed my religion, I was ready to deconstruct. I, my brain was starting to think critically. It was starting to welcome new information. And like my kids, when I told them, hey guys, a lot of these rules we had, no longer do I believe they're real. And uh, their mother and I began to make different choices. For instance, in the faith we came from, there are lots of uh, things you can't do, like drink coffee or drink tea. And suddenly dad's drinking coffee and mom's having a peach tea. And um, the kids are already evaluating like what rules are real and what isn't. And if they're not real, maybe I can test the waters. And I think the grownups are doing the same things, which is once you tell them the entire system is absurd and they were ready to think that way, they're going to challenge some of those things. I certainly challenge some of those things. And, but I, but I like you guys, I want to be a good human being in the world. And I like learning. I like information. And so as I'm jumping around, grabbing information on cognitive development, human development, I'm listening to people like Sam Harris and uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, Richard Rohr from a religious perspective, John Shelby Spong's another one. Um, I just realized like, oh, there's a better way to do this. And so as you guys are saying, maybe some people need structure and maybe some people don't for me and my tribe, which is me, my wife and our, you know, 20 best friends, we get together once a month, we have a party and people sit around and they talk about what they're reading and what they're listening to and where they're learning yeah, from. Yeah. And every time we go off from that get together uh, where people are drinking and, and having fun and, and saying jokes and having good laughs, they're also, uh, they're also kind of bound together in this community relationship 
they're learning from each other. And it feels as though we're all going off because when we come back the next time, it feels like we're something different than when we left. We're learning something new. We're talking about new ideas and new concepts. Um, so I do think I just want to I just want to represent that side of things where there are people, I think, who don't need a ton of structure. And maybe that segments large or small that come out of various religions deconstructing, but they do exist nonetheless. Can I, I have a follow-up question that I want to ask you, Bart, going on what, with, with what Bill said. Do you think, you know, all of us are having to navigate this relationship between order and chaos, right? <clears throat> and you have to, you can't stay in chaos. You eventually have to kind of wrestle with it and make some, some order. Do you think, I've heard this argument before, and it goes to what Bill says, and I don't, I'm, it's what I'm thinking about. I'm chewing on this question. For so many of us who are raised in a system of order, where then we can step out into the chaos, like Bill says, and be okay, is it, is it, do you think that because of entropy and because how hard it is to order things, do you think that that's a preferable way of learning how to find balance than to be born into chaos where there's no rules and there's no story and there's no rituals and no whatever and have to build it? So are you actually at a dis are you at an advantage when you're raised in a system of order because then you can step into chaos and like Bill feel like you're okay navigating that is it harder to come from the other way I think it depends on who you were in that world of order um, somebody like me you know Christianity never hurt me I was a, an esteemed member I was a leader you know and they, they, I mean it, I, you know, I never got, I never got pushed around in Christianity. Like, but I know people that got crushed. I know people that got hurt. Um, I know people who had their sense of agency taken from them. And so I don't know that those people, I would say like, yeah, they were better off growing up in order, an order that mm. told them that they were like, that they were reprehensible, that told, told them that they were second class, that told them they could do nothing. I, I have so many friends I know that just operate from from shame, just deep seated. Just mm. I am not enough. I am not adequate. I am a bad person. And like they don't believe in the in in the, in the religion that made them feel that way, but they still feel that way. Mm. Um, they mm -hmm. apologize for existing. You know, they bump in you and go like, "I'm sorry." You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, you know. Um, and so, I think that depending on your experience in the journey that you had through religion. You may come out of it like I did with lots of skills and a sense, strong sense of self. And uh, yeah, somebody says, indeed, it depends on how hard they crush you. Like, mm -hmm. you know, somebody like me comes out of it with a whole set of skills and, and abilities and understanding. And then somebody else comes out of it just broken in half. And I go, mm -hmm. like, yeah. So, so I don't think there's a one, there's one answer to that. But what I will say is like in the best of all possible worlds, when you get raised, like it's like my basketball coach, he said, you're going to learn all the fundamentals you have to learn how to do it the right way or, or my way. And then once you have the fundamentals, then you can freelance off of that and change things up. But like, if you don't know the fundamentals starting off, you won't have anything to freelance off of. And so mm -hmm. coming out of a system like you did, you go like, that's not right. Well, we could do better than this. And so, but like you have something that you're building off of and you're, and you're, and you're mm -hmm. using as a frame of reference. And if you've ever known anybody who was like raised by wolves, uh, if you've ever known anybody who was raised in a really unstructured, un, like nobody was looking out for them, sex was when they were 12 years old, like 
you know, drugs were everywhere and stuff like that. No, no, no moral compass and stuff like that. that that's awfully hard to overcome. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, if I had to choose, I would probably choose that somebody come out of structure and then freelance off that rather than mm. somebody coming out of no structure and trying to figure out because because structure can really be helpful to us, especially yeah. in, in a complicated world. Is there anything that you look back and say, I still miss, like I've made peace with it, I've made um, rational and emotional, I've made peace with it, but is there anything that you miss from your more faithful days? The only thing I miss is being able to pull into a town in the middle of nowhere, North New Zealand or North Carolina, wherever I am, look around. And know that like within about, you know, five minutes, I can find a place where if I walk in, they'll be speaking a language that I understand and they'll share a value system to some degree. Like I miss, I miss that kind of sense of it's easy, you know, it's easy to find connections wherever you go. Um, But I I was going to say one thing, you know, this is what I miss, but also to Bill's point about the group of people. Bill, as I think about the 20 people at your house at that party, I'm 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 just gonna bet that most of them are pretty attractive people. I don't mean physically. I mean they're your friends. Um, I'm joking. That was a joke. Yeah, no, no. They're yeah. they're 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 bright people. They're, they're bright curious. People. If, yeah. if if I labeled them one thing, they're curious. They want to know how the curious. world works. And 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 also they're relation relationally comfortable mm. enough that they can form friendships. Um, and they can they, they they can make jokes and they can give and take and they somebody can cook and somebody else knows to clean up and they have kid family so there's a sense of well being there among those yeah. twenty people. Yep, there is. Um, there's they're very stable human beings who, before deconstructing their system, they really have led lives of responsibility up to that point. So those people don't need churches and structures because they can make that happen. Great point, by the way. Okay. But I know a lot of people who are socially awkward yeah. or broken in some way yeah. or people who have had experiences that have left them impoverished in one way or another. And on some level, the good thing about a church is that it would create a space where I could invite a kid from, from that world or a person who was lonely. And, and there was a social space in which they could find a place and we could carry them along. And they weren't, they couldn't have created that space for themselves and they wouldn't have been invited to anybody else's space naturally. But because of the structure of our church, we had room for those people. And the world is full of, you know, Beatles used to sing about all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? And I think that one of the things that I'm really passionate about is it's about taking people like the kind that are in your living room on that day and organizing them just enough that they can make some space. And that they can use that carrying capacity to carry some people that otherwise would be alone in the world and otherwise wouldn't have a space to be. You, you and, make a uh, great point because church does that. Church basically says anybody's welcome here. Yeah. And even in a religion that I came from that had tons of rules and lots of things you couldn't, couldn't do, um, there was space for the misfits, right, yeah. to show up as well. And you're right, as we build communities outside of religion one of the things we tend to do is simply gather the people that are like us. And uh, one of the things I think when Britt, you asked the question, like, what do you miss from your old religion? One of the things I do miss is the imposed interaction with people that are very different than you 
because I think it's part of the waking up process is realizing the world is a whole lot messier and complex than we thought it was. And Bill, I'm going to build on that with just one thing back to you, Brent, about what, what do you miss? And I don't miss it as much as I used to because I've got it now, but I missed it in the early days. And that is that my experience with communities is that a community that gathers together in order to provide community for itself doesn't tend to last very long. That a team that forms and says, well, what's the purpose of your team? And you're like, well, we want to be a team. But like most communities that thrive and that survive and that persist have an external mission goal. So like you put together a football team and you go like all different people and you go like, we're not together just to be together. We're together to win games, to win the championship. And so, so when this person and I have a conflict, if it, if it was just about being with people I like, we would split up. One of us would leave the community. Mm. But because we've got a purpose, we go like, we got to work that out. And the other guys are like, we can't, you can't fight with Joe. He's a great quarterback. You, like, you, you gotta get, we need him on the team. And so because you have an external purpose, you have a reason to work through conflict and a reason to, to, kind, of, to kind of listen and learn and understand. It's a little, a little like a family that way. And so I think that what I missed when I first became a, a, a humanist or when I first became like a humanizing person, just meeting with people that I loved and cared about was, is that we were just trying to be community for each other because we missed it, but we didn't have a purpose. And one of the things that making space for broken people gave to us was it gave the whole people a project and, and a reason to work through conflict. I need you. We can't transform all these other people's lives for the better if you're not on the team. Like, oh, you knew that. okay, we'll work that out. And so I think the sense of an external mission. And so some communities are like us versus them. Mm -hmm. Some communities are like us for them. Mm. Not necessarily they all have to join us, but like we exist to make a difference in other people's lives. And you go like, well, that's so selfless. And I go like, no, it's also selfish like a fox because I know that if we don't have a purpose, we won't be able to stick together. Would you say that's the reason why, you know, because we you had this argument that God isn't the magic ingredient, but then also there's this counter argument of I've watched so many secular communities rise and churches and say, we're going to do this thing better. And then what is it like a five year, a yeah, three year and they're gone. They, right? build them, they build them on the basis that they say, we're, we're here to seek truth or we're here to, mm. we're here to promote reason or mm -hmm. we're here. We're here to learn. It's a learning community. So it's like, hard to be like on a high horse that we're really building communities better because our track record, these first few kind of secular communities, secular churches, even, um, even we're finding, so what we're finding, I did a big survey and presented it at Sunstone about post-Mormon communities is that the reason they get together is trauma bonding, right? We all tell our story and there's a huge at the beginning trauma bonding and then it doesn't go anywhere. And it's about at about the three year, five year mark. It's dead. Tell you me know? why. Tell me why. Yeah. And, and all, there's, oh, amen. When we got our gang together, you know, we were sitting around talking and stuff. And finally, we we're talking about our values and all the stuff. And one of, the, one of the young women said, look, I just got to be honest with you. I've been through this before. She's like, if this isn't going to be about love, if this isn't going to be about love, transforming other people's lives through love, I just don't have time for it because it won't last and it won't work. Hmm. And so at some point, 
you have to recognize the sun and, and like you go like, do you have data? Do you have science? Yeah, I got lots of science and data to support the idea that you need to have a purpose and that if you want to have a sustainable purpose around these kinds of issues, family and connection, love is, love is the deal. And so I think you have to look at each other and go like, listen, we're going to love each other. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna commit to loving each other partly because like we want to belong to some we want we want to be connected, but partly because we also want to we're gonna we're gonna love each other so that we can go out and find other people that need love and transform their lives. And you're like, why? And you're like, well, because we have all these mirror neurons and stuff, and we have all these like endorphin <laughs> things, and we know that like we will thrive if we are if we are doing like meaning. If we do something that we feel like makes things better for other people, that will cause us to thrive. And so it is enlightened self-interest that makes me altruistic. Mm-hmm. And I think that a yeah. community, a community that 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 de- de- defines itself only in terms of the well-being of its members, is not likely to last very long. Mm. So that's so interesting. Speaking of the well-being of its members. I got to go. You've got to go. Can you just go. tell us about your podcast where they can find Humanize Me? Yeah, listen. And, and you know what? I don't think – like I know we're, we're going to do this again in a week, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. So – and I promise you, if you're listening to this podcast, like I will be more cogent. I will be nicer. <laughs> I can do better than this. I know I can. <laughs> um, but, 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 but in the meantime, if you want to hear like, – like it's not me – my podcast is kind of me talking to a lot of different people, scientists, writers, musicians, artists, all trying to find out like what they're learning in their lives that we can apply to this business of becoming more human, of becoming more loving, of becoming more grateful, of becoming more excited about the privilege of being alive. And so it's kind of like you get to overhear me trying to figure out, can somebody help me? Cause I'm trying to figure this thing out. And um, it's called Humanize Me. It's, it's a really nice little podcast. I'm sure it's not as popular as yours because you have that, like, this Mormon mafia. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's no, a, your podcast is doing very well, and it's, it's, it's nice amazing. Show. It's amazing. It's a nice show. It's a, a lovely apart, community. There was, there was one, I think, one comment that was kind of pushing back at you, but everybody else, I think, is enjoying it. And I, I tried to represent it right afterward with a positive comment on the same vein, and I think we're all kind of bumping into each other and trying to figure out what's yeah. the right way to move forward. People can be mad at me. That's good. Yeah. That's yeah, good. Yeah. I'm an idiot. <laughs> so listen, right. uh, we'll, we'll get some questions. Week. Yeah, we'll talk to you next week. And just thank you so much for your time. Thank you, guys. Love from us. All right. Have a great day, my friend. Britt, let me change the background there really quick. Uh, and then you and I can maybe chat for a few minutes. You got a little bit of time? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Great, great. Um, first off, I've spent the last week or two here listening to tons of stuff from Bart. I think he is extremely wise and I think he's got an incredible life journey. It is interesting as we got started, he really, he really split tracks right away. Whereas you and I come from this system that imposes that you do this thing inside this tiny little box and you better fit all the ways that which you need to fit. And, and so there's all this um, stress and anxiety and cognitive dissonance as we're coming to grips with this thing not being true that everyone in our life told us was the one true thing we could depend on. And, and he comes into the space going like, ah, I was kind of deconstructing all the way along and nobody ever put any pressure on me. Yeah. And it was, 
it's such a different life journey and still a path of deconstruction. Yeah, it's so interesting. So, you know, he's when what I'm envious of with Christianity and maybe um it it really would have changed I think both of our stories. But what I'm envious of is when when you have 2000 years of Christianity, you can always find kind of a Christian church that resonates with you, right? Or a voice or a little kind of subtext going on where you're like, I like this kind of Christianity. You can do social justice Christianity. You can make a home there and stay there your whole life, right? And so I, when I see these deconstructing Christians, um, it's just not so, it's not as abrupt as it was with you and our, our journey, you know, there's no place in Mormonism where you're just like, Oh, I'm, I'm just, I'm this kind of Mormon now. It's like, well, no, you're not because now you're excommunicated. Right. So, um, it's so interesting, you know, Christians just have so much space because they've been along the ride for longer. But what's even more interesting is that when you look at the Jewish community, which is even older than Christianity, we have, um, this huge population of rabbis who are atheists, who are functioning as social rabbis, you know, New York City and these places that have heavy Jewish communities with no belief in God at all. And it's because they're so much older and they've lost some of their metaphysical beliefs along the way, but the culture is still there. And um, so you can, if someone says I'm Jewish it could mean a thousand different things, including I don't believe in God, right? You can say that. As a Mormon, which is a very, very young religion, I can't say usually unless some, you know, you're just wanting to claim it as your culture. Usually people can't say I'm an active Mormon, but, you know, I don't believe in God or I don't believe in X, Y, Z. You know, we're, we're too young. We haven't found that nuance yet. But some of these older relig- religions, Christianity, Judaism especially, um, you know, there's just a lot more space as you're deconstructing. So you're never falling. You're just kind of walking down a hill, you know, whereas with Mormonism, it can just be so abrupt. And all of a sudden the foundation of everything is gone, you know? Yeah. It's all or nothing. Um, you know, we didn't get a chance to get to the question about what he would think of scripture. I was, I was thinking about that. It's, it's almost like it's time. And again, I know that there is beautiful, healthy, wisdom in scripture already, perhaps, you know, there is some in the Bible, but I don't like the, I don't like the positive and the negative, both being in the same place and too many people thinking literally, and hence you have to either swallow it all or spit it all out. And it's almost feels like maybe we're at a moment where someone needs to come forward claiming to write scripture, but really makes the effort to write something healthy that is all over the place saying it's the finger pointing to the moon rather than the moon itself. It's such a great question. I've asked a few people this question of like, you know, even if scripture is written just by people, right? There's something really cool about getting a bunch of people together who just read a chapter of something and just talking about it. It can be really powerful. It can be really um, enlightening. And, you know, you have groups even doing this. uh, One of my favorite groups is, and they've got a podcast too. They're doing it with Harry Potter. What would it be like Mm. if we met once a week and we read Harry Potter because everybody loves Harry Potter and there's awesome things in Harry, you know, themes in Harry Potter. Mm. And we just talk about it. You know, what if we did that? 
but there's no book that's kind of filled in the space of the Bible yet. And you ask people, well, what book would you have everyone read? And it's like, I don't know, you know, what book would I have everyone read and meet with every week? And we don't quite know what to do to fill that space. You know, the Bible just has, you know, it's just got thousands of years of history that you can always dive into. And so we don't, it's, it's, it's a hole in, you know, secular religion that we kind of haven't filled yet. I would say Brene Brown may be filling that space. Brene Brown is kind of a patron saint of all secular kind of groups because she's, you know, in there dealing with the science of love and shame and all these things. But And book clubs will kind of do it. But, yeah, there's not one book that everybody's reading, developing a history with like there was with the Bible. We'll have to talk about that with Bart next week. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing, he, he really got me thinking. I, I know he felt, I put that one comment up on the screen. I actually was going to click one comment and then the other one came up new. And so I accidentally clicked that one. I didn't want to put any pressure on him that there was something negative going on in terms of perception of him. I thought most of the comments were absolutely positive. One of the things he really got me thinking on is in my head prior to this conversation, I thought, yeah, you know, everybody go out. Everybody should be having gatherings Find people that are like you, and hopefully everybody finds a group, even if it's a small group of five people, and other people will find a group of 20, and some people will have a group of 100. But he hits this really good point, which is we got to find a place that feels safe for all kinds of people to show up in, and simply having a party at my house for the people that I get along with isn't doing that. Like, yes, it gives those 20 people community so I'm not going to stop, but um, it's not serving the greater purpose that church did, which is bring all these different people together and have a place where we can serve each other and learn from each other. And everyone can feel on some level that they belong. Although on the other side of it, I feel like most fundamentalist religions, you're struggling to fit in. It's not real belonging, Yeah, but they do give you that impression in your own mind before you believe it's not true. Yeah, even in fundamentalist religion, though, if if I don't show up on Sunday, someone's going to know and someone's going to text me and ask if I'm okay, right? And it goes to this problem. So this is the key problem that we're leaning into is that we're looking at Gen Z spirituality and they're not going to sit in a pew. They're just not, you know, as a, as a as a generation. And this idea that, you know, these are the rituals and this is the story and all other stories is wrong. They just don't buy it, right? Yeah. And so what do we do then? I, I get this all the time from um, adults who say, you know, I'm getting a sense of my own spirituality. I have my own friends that I feel community with. But then the kids, it's different because they um, weren't raised in a place where they're getting all these skills and they're getting um you know, if you're raised in a religion, no matter what it was, you're getting practice in delayed gratification. You're getting practice standing in front of people. You're getting practice serving people and having them serve you. You're getting, you know, all of these tools that you're practicing over and over that we take for granted when we just say, oh, I'm just going to go with my friends. Well, the kids aren't getting that same kind of experience with religion. They're not getting that same socialization with gathering. You know, if your friend said, I want, I read this book and I'm going to give you this chapter and we're all going to sit around and read it. We've had lots of practice doing that, Bill, you and I. Um, but then this rising generation, it's different. And so this movement has to be something bigger than just me and my friends, because we have this whole generation that is really spiritually 
um, depressed and anxious and um, lost. And um, they haven't, we haven't been a part of building something for them. Yeah. With them. Yeah. I don't see the comment here now. I thought I saw a comment a second ago, but there was somebody saying that they're really empty after having kind of, here's one right here. Edward says, I feel so alone after my departure. Um, I've never felt that. And so I don't really grasp that. And, and the reality is that it was very easy for me because of certain, I think I'll call it privilege. There's certain forms of privilege that I've had that allowed me to connect with people really easy and to attract people into a group and call it my new tribe. And not everybody has that. And this conversation with Bart was really uh, influential on me to, to strive to find ways to create spaces that anyone and everyone who wants to participate can, can feel like they belong. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to talk about because one of the reasons I love this space is because it's so exciting because no one has the magic, um, no one has the magic formula yet and that's scary and that's terrifying, but it's also really exciting. You know, we, we had all these secular churches. I've been following so many, um, and then just watching them die and realizing, Oh, we haven't figured out how to do this better than fundamental religion has. And that's a challenge. Even something like moving money over. I was talking about money on our last podcast, right? That, that there's this idea that fundamentalism, religion, they just have th- just so much money, but yet the people that you really want to hear in the world, they're doing this part-time for free, you know, with their day jobs. And it's like, how do we, how do we move that over? That's a whole, that's a whole project in and of itself of just moving that, that over. So it's so interesting because this is, this is a new human project and you and I are just small little cockroaches trying to figure out trying to you know make way in the space too but we're all trying to figure it out together because nobody has the magic formula on how to do on how to do secular communities that have everything that religion had yeah you're right i mean take this podcast for instance this episode will be listened to by a bare minimum of 2500 people that's bigger than any church right um, at least, at least uh, any church that you and I have ever been in, and uh, 2,500 people, and yet there's not a way to bring in the kind of cash to support the effort of this versus that. Like it's so much easier for a church simply because of the nature of the expectation of what it is and how it thrives and what it survives on, to the point where in an LDS congregation, you've got way more money coming in than need be used in a year. And so much of that goes back to Salt Lake and they're using it for whatever. And and so how do we convince people to see this as their community, or at least one option for community and to support it in such a way that it thrives? I loved how you use thrive, by the way, because thrive is part of Mormonism now. And we've got these groups of, of people uh, involved in thrive that are really helping people kind of move on past religion, but thrive is a model that I'm, I'm really watching because they're doing, they're, they're doing that bigger vision part, right? It's not just let's hang out for a weekend. They're talking about, no, 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 let's have a thrive in every city. Let's have a place where people can show up in every city because they want to do spiritual exploration outside of a traditional church environment. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if it succeeds. 
I'm I'm really excited for what they're doing over there. And it's the same thing too, though. If if they get together in Salt Lake City once a year and fifteen hundred people show up, how many years would those same fifteen hundred be there? It, it it feels like it's one of those things that people are going to go to until their needs are met some other way, and then they'll kind yeah. of disappear and fade away. That's my big. That's my biggest fear. Um, and this is just me talking vulnerably now. My biggest fear is that um, it will. It will. This thing that we're trying to do will never grow because um, it's trying to sell. So, like, if you're a child and you have um, a binky, right? This feels really good. Feels really safe. Feels really warm. And I'm trying to sell, right? Take away the binky and let's face the chaos a little bit. And it's going to hurt and it's going to be messy and it's going to be hard and it's going to be, you know, you're building religion from the ground up and you're building ritual into your lives intentionally instead of, you know, just having this calendar, which makes it easy to just show up. And the, you know, the great fear I think that everyone in this space has is maybe this is too hard for humans to do, you know, maybe this, that's the fear because it's never been done. It's never been done. And, um, Mm. so it's exciting, but that's the scary part of it. That's the scary part of it is that maybe, um, maybe it's too hard of a sell to sell taking away your binky. Um, and you know, fundamentalism, you just get this zeal, right? I'm going to take over the world with fundamentalism. You can strap a, strap a bomb to your test, to your chest and be a hundred percent sure that your next breath, you're going to be in heaven. Right. And maybe the kind of space that we're talking about, you just don't get that same kind of zeal. And maybe then there'll always be less power and money in it. And maybe not enough to, to really change the fundamental nature of society. But, you know, you and I are going to be here anyway, even if the ship goes down. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't want to spend my life talking about other things than the things we're going to talk about on this podcast. Yeah. It, I want to help people not only, as you pointed out, I want to help people not only deconstruct and I want to help them do that, but I want to help them sense that there is a really beautiful world out there and there are really beautiful ways to show up in it. And there are ways that maybe you haven't even considered before. For instance, we talk now next week, we'll have uh, Bart Campolo back on for part two. And in the meantime, now that people have gotten a feel for him and what his, where he comes from, uh, we can maybe gather some questions and, and ask them those. But you and I talked about in a future episode soon, we're going to talk about consent. And I have really wonderful ideas on consent. So do you. And they're ideas that I hadn't even thought about a year ago. They mm. are ways in which I was in the middle of a situation where consent was not part of the situation. And I, for the first time in my life, felt it. And connected it to the word consent and understood like, oh, that's consent. Mm. And that's how that works. And it's not going on here in this space. And I'm excited because you and I are going to unravel all these kinds of topics and help people maybe see something they hadn't seen before. Now, I I don't pretend to be a know-it-all. There's going to be things that you know that I don't, things I know that you don't. And there's things that our audience knows that neither one of us have a clue about. And it's going to be a fun journey to kind of sit down each week and uh, wrestle with curiosity on all the different things that are involved in being a good human being. 
Yeah. And that's, it's those two together that makes me really excited for this journey that we're going to take together, Bill, which is not just curiosity for the sake of curiosity, which can be like, you know, I was a history teacher. That was my trade <clears throat> before I had children. And sometimes you just get, can get high off of all the curious stuff that you're learning, but it's curiosity for a reason, which is how do we, we got this one life how do we make the best of it? How do we leave something behind that's better than what we found? Um, how do we change the dynamic of our families? How do we, how do we love better? How do we do all of it? And um, so it's curiosity towards this direction of, of human flourishing. And that's what yeah. makes our project so exciting. So audience yeah. who stayed with us, thank you so much for staying with us for this conversation. We had about, I guess, 50 of you stayed with us for the whole, for the whole hour. So just really appreciate that Bill and I would be doing this anyway because we love these conversations, but seeing that there's others joining us um, makes me happy. So thank you for everybody Beautiful. who stayed. Beautiful. We'll see you guys next week for part two uh, with Bart Campolo. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartley.